0: have you ever kind of trained for something or went to school for something and then all of a sudden it became like real life? I remember the first time that I uh, had to perform in a really big setting. It was in 1994 and it happened to be like a brass section at the Jazz Fest with this big gospel choir. And I remember kind of feeling like, oh, this is the real deal. Like I've practiced in my, in my room or in a practice room or at school or I've practiced with these musicians or I've learned these notes but then you kind of you walk on a stage and at that night, it was like the last night of the 1994 jazz festival there's like about 50,000 people sitting on, on the steps of Place des Arts there's wind and there's noise there's lights there's sound people there's people getting your attention you got to listen to the director you got to listen to people and all of a sudden it becomes really real Right? It's not like I know my part, I was in my room all by myself, I got this down packed. Now, among all the distractions, among all the lights, among people, and all the things going on, now I must perform right in the middle of that. And it's like the rubber meets the road. And so, what I practiced alone had to work in public. Right? Whatever I did by myself or whatever music capabilities I was growing, it had to work in public. And I wonder if you felt that at some point where maybe you've been preparing for a career and then you get this job. And it's your first few weeks, and it's like, okay, this is real. Like I don't just—I didn't just read about marketing. Now I got to market this product, right? Uh, I didn't just learn about the body. Now I got to perform surgery on this person. I hope there's a trajectory between <laughs> learning and surgery. But anyways, uh, or you know, I've been dating this person, and now uh, we're committing to each other. We're getting married or something, and it's like. The first couple of years, is like, oh, okay, this is like serious. I got to, this is like, I'm living this out, right? So whatever you know on the inside begins to get tested on the outside. And last week, we ended off in First Peter chapter er, 2, verse 11 and 12. And I'll just read verse 12 together. Peter says these words to these Christians in the first century. He says, live such good lives among the pagans or the world, the culture around you, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's just pray for a second. Father, as we continue in this letter uh, called First Peter, um, we invite you to speak, to guide, to lead to work in us and through us, to give us some fresh revelation and insight and uh, make this really personal to us as well where you see fit and where you know we need it most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We talked about a lot of stuff last week, but part of the thrust of it was what does it mean to live out your new life, your new faith, your new hope in Christ among the world? And Peter uses this preference, like this adjective, good lives. What does it mean to live out this good life, this newness in Christ? So, this new life we have in Jesus must make its way outside into the real world. It's not just what's inside, but it has to work outside. And Peter gets super practical with these Christians that he's writing to in the first century. No more spiritual theory. No more, this is who you are. No more, let me remind you what Jesus did in you. No more, hey, you got this hope in you, right? And it's not just spiritual theory. It's like, let's see what this new faith looks like on the outside, Let's see what this new faith looks like in the real world. And I wrote this phrase, if you could kind of remember it, and I think it'll help you in so many different ways as we consider our our walk with Christ. It's this, we must learn how to apply our new life in real life. We got to learn how to apply our new life or what we have in Christ. And for some of you, it may be really new, like weeks or months or a year. For some of you, it might be 20 years. But how to apply this life we have in Christ to real life. And Peter um, addresses these three categories as we continue in chapter 2 today. These real life issues that most of his readers would have faced. As citizens of their region, they would have faced these issues. As some of them in in his church as actual slaves that had masters. Okay, slavery was a little different back then, but still the concept was there. The idea of what about in your marriage or in your house? So Peter begins to address these three categories: like government, uh, work, and marriage. In what it means to apply your new life to real life, and so he hits this idea of government first. And it's in chapter two, starting from verse thirteen, and he hits this. He just shares this little section, and this is what he tells these Christians in the first century. And I have a sense it's gonna, um, some of the stuff we're gonna read today is like, oh, th- does the New Testament really talk about this? How do I apply it? Does it make sense to me today in the 21st century? So here's, here's what Peter says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to emperor, the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Man, if we just like, take that literally and apply it to different pockets of the world, you think it all work out the same way? People live in different contexts. People live under different governments, for sure. But as citizens, now remember, Peter just said, live such good lives among your world that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds, your life, and glorify your God in heaven. Now he addresses them as citizens. And he uses this word, he uses this word submit. To submit means you're under authority. And he says submit to the emperor or to the governors, to every human authority. And so the emperor of Rome obviously was like the top ruler of the Roman Empire. And then governors, you know, they, 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 um, they reported to the emperor and they were kind of his hands and feet. And of course the authority continued kind of through different levels. But here's Peter saying, As Christ followers in your country, in your nation, in your region, how might you live this life out, even this good life? Now, I just want to step back a second. This is not a comment on the government itself. It's not a comment on good or bad government by Peter. He's not making a political statement. He's not saying anything about the emperor or about the governors. He's not giving his personal opinion or a critique. We don't know all this from what he says. We know that Peter has had a, not such a great time with the emperor. He probably lived during the time of Nero. Nero didn't treat Christians well. Peter didn't end, his life didn't end well. And part of that was how the culture, the society, the government treated him. But Peter doesn't bring that into play here. He's just saying there's this general understanding of the authority of the state that brings order to a society. And in a normal government, people get commended for doing well and punished for doing wrong, as authority is set in place. Now, Peter's readers were likely under attack from their peers, from their friends from people who thought that they were strange in following this Jesus, possibly treated unfairly or very likely treated unfairly even from the authorities. And the temptation that any of us would have in that moment would be let's retaliate. Let's create a violent uproar. Let's create a revolution and just change this whole thing down. And as we know through human history, sometimes that has worked, but very often when one tyranny is brought down, another tyranny kind of rises up. Their temptation, I'm sure at the time, but as any human temptation when you're constantly marginalized, whether for your status, for your faith, for your religion, for who you are, for whatever, you want to retaliate. You want to, in some ways, do something. Peter says, in the middle of this context, don't be criticized for doing bad. Don't be criticized for doing wrong. Don't use your freedom to do evil because you're free in Christ now and so God has freed you and you know what is good and what is right but be mindful of how you live your life. He says, don't be criticized for doing wrong but be caught doing good. Be caught doing good. And he lists some things. He's like, have respect for everyone around you. Doesn't mean you agree with them all but have respect for them. He says, love your church family well. Love the people that are closest to you really, really well and demonstrate who you are. He says, fear God, in a sense like live with reverence for who God is and what he's done. And then he even says, and this is tough, right? He says, honor the emperor. Now, if you know anything about New Testament times, when when the church declared that Jesus is Lord, what they were automatically saying is Caesar is not Lord. So when the church said Jesus is Lord, Caesar got upset. When the church said Jesus is the son of God, Caesar got upset because Caesar called himself the son of God. So Peter's not saying, step back, don't ever talk about Jesus, never declare Jesus Lord, make sure you do nothing that the emperor or anybody would notice that would cause a problem. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying there's this established authority in the state. Honor that authority and do good there. So he's not saying give your approval or agree with everything they say. Because he knows how difficult it is to live in the empire. But he's saying, live such a countercultural life that is noticeably good. And this is what he says, that you would silence the ignorant talk about you. They were getting talked about. They were, people were criticizing them. People were talking bad of them. People were, were making up stories about them. People were trying to trash talk them and bring them down and, and, and just like, like, um, make people lose faith in them. And Peter says, live such a good life in your society, even in how you interact with your government, that you would silence your critics. Last Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and um, I, I wish we celebrated it more in Canada, and I had this kind of urge and conviction after last Sunday. I thought, next year we should do like a Martin Luther King Sunday. Would that be cool? Think should, I think we should do it. Okay, so hold me to it and bug me about it. I think we should, we should uh, kind of come around that. So last week was this this obviously celebration, and you know maybe you saw quotes all over the internet, and everybody's a Martin Luther King fan. Last Monday, right? Um, there's this letter that I found that uh, someone I respect posted, and it was a letter that Martin Luther King wrote to his community in Montgomery after the Supreme Court made a decision to abolish segregation. One of the big issues in the civil rights movement is that white people walked into the front of the bus and black people walked onto the back of the bus, and if if that ever changed, there was you could not be together. And so segregation meant that you didn't go to white restaurants if you were black and, and you didn't go to white schools if you were black. And Martin Luther King fought hard and, um, and really caused a stir to, to bring change towards that, with this strong Christian belief that everyone is created equal in the eyes of God. And after the Supreme Court won this, or brought this kind of down, and it was a victory for them, they abolished segregation. And the day after the court comes against this, you would think that Martin Luther King would be extra bold and tell his friends and community in Montgomery, hey guys, we got a victory. Let's walk in the streets. Let's cheer. Let's tell everybody that they were wrong. Let's show them that we were right. Rise up against them against this injustice. We're not done yet. Now he did grow in confidence, but listen how he responds to them. And and there's this letter on the screen. You can't read it. It's just it's too uh, hard to read from there. But he writes this letter to uh, to help them understand what integrated bus suggestions would be like. Now think of yourself in Montgomery There's a black person or family. The Supreme Court just votes something in your favor. Here's what he writes. He says, this is a historic week because segregation on buses has now been declared unconstitutional. Within a few days, the Supreme Court mandate will reach Montgomery and you will be reboarding integrated buses. This places, this places upon us all a tremendous responsibility of maintaining in the face of what could be some unpleasantness, a calm and long-loving dignity befitting good citizens and members of our race. If there is violence in word or deed, it must not be by our people who commit it. So for your help and convenience, the following suggestions are made. Please read this. Study it. Memorize it. So that our non-violent determination may not be endangered. First, some general suggestions. Not all white people are opposed to integrated buses, except goodwill on the part of many. The whole bus is now for the use of all people. Take a vacant seat. Pray for guidance and commit yourself to complete nonviolence in word and action as you enter the bus. Demonstrate the calm dignity of our Montgomery people in your actions. In all things, observe ordinary rules of courtesy and good behavior. Remember that this is not a victory for Negroes alone, but for all Montgomery and the South. Do not boast, do not brag. Be quiet but friendly, proud but not arrogant, joyous but not boisterous. Be loving enough to absorb evil and understanding enough to turn an enemy into a friend. Now for some specific instructions. He says, The bus driver is in charge of the bus and has been instructed to obey the law. Assume he will cooperate. Do not deliberately sit by a white person unless there is no other seat. In sitting down by a person, white or colored, say, May I or pardon me as you sit. This is a common courtesy. And if... um, I think he said, oh, if cursed, do not curse back. If pushed, do not push back. If struck, do not strike back. But evidence, love, and goodwill at all times. In case of an incident, talk as little as possible and always in a quiet tone. Do not get up from your seat. Report all serious incidents to the bus driver. For the first few days, try and get on the bus with a friend in whose nonviolence you have confidence. In other words, don't get onto the bus with a fighter. If you can hold, you can uphold one another by a glance or a prayer... If another person is being molested, do not arise to go to his defense, but pray for the oppressor and use moral and spiritual forces to carry on the struggle for justice. According to your own ability and personality, do not be afraid to experiment with new and creative techniques for achieving reconciliation and social change. And finally, if you feel you cannot take it, walk for another week or two. We have confidence in our people. God bless you all. The Montgomery Improvement Association, Martin Luther King. I just, I read that and I thought, what? How could he, wouldn't he want to just say, Let's do this? But he knows that in the long run, and he did his homework and he studied and he prayed and he, he researched the opposite approaches to to fighting a government, he realized that the way to victory is not violence, but goodness. And it didn't keep him silent, it didn't stop him from protesting. in 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 ways that they did, but they did it in such a way that what? They silenced the people who talked ignorantly about them. I think there's something to learn from there. When we 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 it's hard for many of us to relate to this situation. But we might be find ourselves in situations where we don't agree with what's going on. Or we don't Um, approve of what's happening how do we live the kind of life that peter calls us to in the midst of our culture to silence our critics so this was them in the first century as peter writes to them that was then what about you what about you how would you live your new life in real life today in our structure i bet you if if i asked you to put your hand up i say is there one thing that you're not happy about our government who would put up their hand Anybody? Yeah, I'm sure, right? And it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on. There's something, many things that we would disagree with. Today, there's a protest in Point Claire at the, at the town hall because uh, the mayor of our city, you know, the whole tax hike and, and, and the West Island boroughs are upset. And they're like, man, how are you going gonna to raise our funds? What are they doing? They've legally planned a protest. If you are in agreement with that, you can walk there peacefully and show your disagreement with the mayor of Montreal, if you want. I'm not telling you to. I'm not telling you should or you shouldn't, but that is very possible for you to do, even as a believer. So we, we, we can't get all into this today, but we, are, we need to wrestle in our day what it means to be Christ followers, what it means to live this new life in real life in times where we don't always disagree with everything. How will we shine, as Peter is saying, in these ways? Maybe some questions come up for you Uh, Maybe if we have some time, I'll ask for for questions, and maybe we can walk through some and at least hear them. But the next thing Peter says, and this is a tough one, he talks to slaves. He says in, in verse 18, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable for God. Man, this is so hard to read. This is, we're saying this is in the Bible. If you go to work tomorrow and just read this text with no context and no explanation, they're going to say, see, I told you the Bible's not good. I told you, the Bible, like, permits all kinds of crazy things and injustices, but I want you to understand here for a moment. First of all, slavery in the 19th and 20th century was a little bit different than the kind of slavery in the first century. There was a variety of levels of slavery in the first century. Sometimes someone had just had a huge debt, and they literally sold themselves to the person who had the debt, and they worked for them for life. Um, sometimes people um, just got into a problem and they fell into that. And of course, there was abuses in the first century. Slavery wasn't pretty in the first century. But the reality is, is that here's, here's the point of this text. There were people in the church who were slaves. Peter's not writing theoretically. He's writing to people in the church that are reading this letter who were slaves, who worked for a master that maybe treated them well and maybe didn't treat them well. And that's the reality. The gospel at first reached many of these people because it gave them such dignity and hope and, and, and wonder. And at least when Peter was writing, it didn't fully reach all the classes in society yet. Now Paul writes a letter called Philemon, who writes it to a wealthy master, And his slave, Onesimus, becomes a Christian with Paul in another city. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, you must not treat him like a slave anymore. You must treat him like a brother. And so now this Christian slave and Christian master have to figure out how are we going to be the body of Christ together. At that point, the gospel started reaching different classes of people. Here, as Peter writes, he's writing to people who are actually slaves and have to go to work the next day. And so, this is a struggle, right? How am I going to live my new life in my real life? Just for a second, if I'm a slave. And just to let you know, I don't believe for anything that the New Testament condones slavery. I see this, this con- constant push against society towards what is God's ideal. And the New Testament and the trajectory of Scriptures, especially the New Testament, pushed against slavery. In fact, it was a Christian, William Wilberforce, who was the catalyst to abolish slavery in North America. So, but in the meantime, here's Peter. What are you going to do with slaves in your church? He's speaking to a particular people with particular advice at a particular time. And imagine he said those words, and this rubs us the wrong way in our culture, where if someone says something wrong, you post it on Facebook and a thousand people know, and then... There's a Twitter campaign against it, right? Peter says Peter says to them, Submit to your master. Now, does he say that because he condones what the master is doing? No. He's trying to help them in this specific situation. He says, if you're gonna get punished, get at least be criticized or get punished for doing something good. Be mindful of your freedom now that you have in Christ, and and discern how you're gonna treat your master even when they don't treat you well. So he didn't condone abuse, but he encouraged these Christians to endure suffering in a different way. God didn't call them to suffer, but he says, in this season of suffering, how will you live out your new life? How will you live out your new life? In fact, he says, he says it's commendable when you endure suffering for something good. Now, what's that word commendable mean? He says, God God commends you doesn't mean God honors the situation. It doesn't mean God stands there clapping and say, oh man, look at that abuse that you're enduring. That's not what it means. Commendable does not mean honored, praised, or celebrated in the moment. When someone commends you, they're not agreeing with your circumstance. They are honoring your character in that circumstance, Right? So if a friend of mine goes through such a difficult time for a year at work or something and having such a struggle at work and they get through it and they tell me, you know, some of the difficult things that their boss did and the circumstances and I sit there and I say, man, I commend you for going through that. I commend your character and your resilience and your heart and your faith that you went through that and you came out the other side and you made a difference in that situation. I'm not saying Your boss is awesome. I'm not saying situation, great, commendable. No, I'm saying you're commendable. Your character came through that. And so that's what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying God commends us when we walk through difficult situations strength and resilience and posture and faith and hope and character. And for slaves in that church, because slavery is never good, but that was their situation. So this is not something the New Testament is saying slavery is good for all time. It's just saying, I'm talking to slaves right now. What are you going to do this week? Peter is helping them respond wisely and differently than non-Christians would. How, would your, how are you going to um, act and live in that situation? And so let me ask you again, that was them, that was then, this is now. How do you apply that to your life? Well, how do you live your new life in real life when you're in an oppressive situation or a difficult situation? What, um, just curious, any questions come up? Because I don't don't pretend that I have the answers, but I'd love to hear any kind of questions that come up as we're just talking about this, just these two categories, we're not going to hit the third one today. Anybody, any questions come up as you're listening to that, thinking about that? Does does, does something come up? You're like, we never do this at Westside, so it's going to be very quiet for, and maybe no one will say anything. Send me a private email if you want. No questions? Nothing? Okay, cool. Let me kind of move towards the end this way. What could possibly motivate people to do this? This people that we're, we're reading about in the first century. You might look at your situation, maybe what is going on in your life and definitely different, but maybe there's some, some themes, some difficulties. What could possibly be the motive to live like this? I mean, seriously. Now here's, again, a disclaimer here. The scriptures aren't condoning or agreeing with abusive government or an abusive master or a culture that doesn't see people as equal and valid. But why? how could Peter write this? And what would be their motive to not use their new freedom in Jesus to respond differently? Maybe react or revolt or retaliate or rebel. Why would they use their freedom to endure that situation maybe for a short season? And here's a few things why. I think one is there was a deep love for people that they received when they found Jesus. There was a deep love for people that that comes into an individual as they begin to follow Christ and even our enemies, our new life in Christ begins to shape us to love them. So this new love for people that started to break down cultural barriers, cultural um, presuppositions, And it's this love, this desire for the people that are in front of us, regardless if they're our enemy or not, for them to know who God is and know his love. And I think in that moment, these Christ followers are starting to discern, how do I love even my enemy and appropriate the teachings of Jesus? How do I respond to people? What's my opportunity to love? How do I show Christ love? How do I reflect God's kingdom in this moment? Because it's a desire to love people. And even if it's not a situation that's condoned, or God would not want, or God would not agree with, how do we live through that? How do we love people even through that? This uh, this uh, person in the second century, funny name, Athanagoras, Athanagoras. I don't know. I won't say it right. But they were from Athens. Go figure. Um, they write to the emperor in the second century. The second century and the emperor is trying to figure out these Christians now are growing, the church is growing, and they're, they're living such a different life. Inside the homes, the relationships between even men and different men and women differed from, the, from culture, uh, how they served the poor, uh, how they, they took time with people, how they, 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 they rescued babies that were often just left to the side. How, why are these people doing this? How, why are they retaliating differently? And so this person... In the second century writes back to the Emperor and says this about his experience, he says, and it's on the screen, "For we have learned not only not to return blow for blow, nor to go to law with those who plunder and rob us, but to those who might us, or hurt us or spite us, who might us on one side of the face, to offer the other side also, and to those who take away our coat to give likewise our cloak." In other words, he says, We've become these people. We have learned from the apostles, from the church, from Jesus Himself, to, to to live differently in our society and to not retaliate in the same way. And what they were saying is, I forfeited my rights, my personal rights, to love people the way God loves them, so they might know Jesus. It's crazy, eh? that they would care so much for the soul of an individual that they would sacrifice their own or that they would suffer themselves. Sometimes it was said that Christians would alternate days of fasting because other people didn't have food. And they said, "I'm gonna." this wasn't just a spiritual practice. They said, we're going through a famine here. You know what? I'll fast for two days. I can take it, so we'll ration the food. People look at that. The emperor says, who are these people? What are they doing? Why would they forfeit their right to help others? There's this, this movement, prayer movement that started in the 1700s called called the, about the Moravians, and uh, it was a prayer culture that literally it turned into a hundred year long prayer meeting. There was nonstop prayer from a whole bunch of people for a hundred years. Incredible things happened. Some of the most in, um, some of the most used catalysts, I'd say, in Christianity after that were were inspired by this. John Wesley and others. So the Moravians were praying, praying, praying. There was a community. Um, and these two people in this community felt a call as they're growing in Christ and growing in the Lord to go share the gospel to this like, place in another part of the world. And the only way that they could get there, it was a slave community. And they felt such a burden for these people that they didn't know Jesus, such a call in their lives that they told their community, they say, we must go there. And their community said, you can't go there. Only slaves live there. And they prayed and they thought, and this is the craziest thing. I'm not suggesting that you do this, but this is the craziest thing. They said, we will go and sell ourselves into that community to share the gospel to them. We will become slaves so they will know the love and power of Jesus. I mean, how could they do that if not for love for people? It's not a requirement. You're not called to do that, specifically anywhere written in the scriptures, but that's what, they're called, that's what they felt the Lord leading them to. Second thing is trust, not just love. They had this incredible trust for God. Every time Peter wrote this, he says, for the Lord's sake or in reverent fear of God, in other words, God's at work in our lives. Let's trust him in this difficult situation that we will endure and trust that he will accomplish something through us. So even this week when you're going through a difficult time and you want to retaliate abruptly or arrogantly and you say, Lord, how can, I, how can I stand up for this? How can I react well? How can I react in a way that honors you? What you're doing is you're saying, God, I'm going to trust you that your way of responding is the way that's going to be the best way. And lastly, to respond like Jesus. Verse 21. And uh, I'm, we're not going like, to unpack this. We're just going to read it. Verse 21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So Peter's not saying you're called to suffer, but he says, listen, Jesus, I want to point you to how Jesus suffered. He's not saying you're called to suffer, but if and when you suffer, I want to call you to suffer like Jesus suffered. So when we're walking through something, it's not that God says, I've called you to suffer. But in that suffering, how will we respond and suffer like Jesus? And Peter goes on for a few verses, and he quotes Isaiah 53, the image of the suffering servant of the Messiah that one day will die on a cross. And he he reads this. So I want you to, we're just going to read this uh, briefly, and I'll stop it every second. So just go to the next one, Abigail. Abigail. So here's, he starts to quote Isaiah. Listen to this, describing Jesus. He committed no sin. In other words, Jesus committed no sin, no violence in his retaliation. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He was honest and transparent even in the midst of his suffering. Then he says, when they hurled insults at him at the cross, so they insulted him verbally, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. So here's Jesus' response. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges. He, too, trusted himself to God. He said, God is the ultimate judge. I'm going to leave vengeance and revenge to him. And then he goes on and he says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. And here's why. So that we might die to sin, so that sin will not affect us eternally, and that we might live for righteousness. In other words, live the life he's calling us to. And then I love this next section. By his wounds you have been healed. Because of Christ's suffering, we can find healing. And then lastly, for you are like sheep. He quotes Isaiah again. For you were like sheep going astray. He, he says, you know, it's like we're lost, not knowing where to go, but now you have returned, and here's the beautiful line, and we're going to close with this. The shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus The shepherd and overseer of your soul, of my soul. In other words, when we come to him, we are safe in the shepherd's arms. Here's Peter trying to help these first century believers how to respond and retaliate in their difficulty, and then points them to Christ and how he responded, and knowing that they are safe in the shepherd's arms, that as we believe in Christ and we come under his care, we're safe in. His arms. And I think even people like Martin Luther King had that trust. It was said that the day before he was assassinated, he had this sense that he was looking beyond the horizon, beyond the mountain, as he described it, towards eternity. And he said, it's okay, it's going to be a good day. The next day he was assassinated. And he had this deep trust that eventually the arc of injustice would bend to God's kingdom. He believed it. He trusted it. Where did he get that from? From texts like this, from the words of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close in prayer today. And um, I don't know what you're walking through, what's, what you're struggling with, what, how this message kind of uh, speaks to you, and the contrast it might have even in our society and our culture. We live in a culture that just. Um, any of this stuff, we just we just don't even want to touch, because you know what? You know what's happened. Christianity has actually the teachings of Christ has actually informed history in how to treat people, in how to view people equally, in how to love people. That we look at this text and say, I can't even imagine life like this. But that's in Canada, North America. There's parts of the world that people unfortunately still go through things like this. But we know that, um, as God calls us to respond to live out our faith, this is some of the most difficult ways for us to say, "How is our new life going to fit into our real life? How is our new life going to become our real life or work in our real life?" Let's pray, Father. Um, yeah, help us, God, as we as we read texts like this um, to appropriate it for our life and our culture and our society our modern era as well. God, we're thankful that somehow in your, in your grace, in your truth, in your wisdom, as that first church responded like Jesus, that actually began to shift, shift society and culture. It showed them a different way thank you that they did not run away from fear or pain or oppression. But somehow, God, by your spirit, by your grace, by your love that transformed them, they became a light, even in the most difficult situations. God, we know that, you're, that, you, that you call us to justice, that you call us um, to goodness, that you know that that you've taught us that every single person on the planet is created equally in your image. May we be a church that, that resonates with that, that lives out and calls out and proclaims justice where injustice is. But also in seasons, help us to be discerning and wise in how to respond, in how to retaliate, in how to reflect Jesus whatever the situation. God, because we, 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 long, we long to know that this is the best way and your goodness is found here, but we also know and pray for change around us as this happens. God, we pray this in Christ's name. To him be glory. The shepherd and overseer of our souls. Amen.